This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me as always is my co-host. Hanky, come out to play. Hanky, come out to play. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? It's Death by DVD. All right. So last week, we left you with bated breath on what other anthology films are we going to be talking about since the first three were so successful of where we said most of them are one to two star movies. Are we going to get past that? Are we going to get to something that's possibly a three star movie? No, we are not. I don't know. I might give this one a little bit of a higher rating than the others just because it's more well-produced. I think this is going to be the shining star on this entire polished turd of a two-part episode. So the ball is in my court. If you don't remember, it's anthology movies. Tales from the Hood, 1995, written and directed by Rusty Cundiff, produced by Spike Lee. Now, this movie ends up getting a little bit of a higher grade than all the other ones because of its social commentary. Obviously, stating that it was produced by Spike Lee, you're going to have to take some consideration that this movie and this story is based on African Americans. And I think some of its success is really because it paints a black exploitation epic, but from a different style. And what I mean by that is most black exploitation films that were incredibly successful were made by guys like Larry Cohen and Jack Hill, honkies. In this situation, you actually have an African-American making a movie, and almost all, not almost, all of the stories involve um, the lack of affirmative action, the lack of justice, the lack of care that the United States in particular has with African-Americans and just the black culture in general. And this movie kind of transcended things because it involves a lot of, at the time, successful and famous white actors playing pretty despicable roles, and you get to see the tables turned on a lot of people. One thing that I do find somewhat uncomfortable is this a movie that was produced after The Crow that involves Michael Massey pointing a gun and shooting it at somebody. You kind of would have thought after the incident with Brandon Lee that he would have shied away from using firearms in movies and playing rat-fuck son-of-a-bitch characters, but he did not. Michael Massey died, he had what? To eat. Yeah, he had to eat, so he, he got cast, but still, I just wouldn't be able to handle a firearm after that. Um, he died two or three years ago, a little bit before his time, and had been doing mainly TV work before that. And again, not trying to begin this with a problematic nature, but that is sort of a fault with Tales from the Hood, is it has a very late-night TV feel to it when you're looking for something a little bit more explicit. 
So to kick this off, we've got the story of three. You know what it feels like, though? It feels like an HBO, like, uh, uh, like a pilot for like a almost like a like black the hitchhiker. Tales from the Crip. Well, I mean, the, the, I mean, it plays a little bit more Tales from the Crypt for me because it does have a little bit more of a supernatural slash monster element to it as opposed to the the Hitchhiker, which was mostly just like little crime stories and stuff like that, like, you know, wife cheating nonsense. And this one feels like that you could have actually made a regular TV series out of it, hosted by Clarence Williams III. You don't have to have the exact wraparound story. Um, you could just use him as the Crypt Keeper type. You don't have to have a new guy like they, because in the wraparound footage of this, it's people visiting their their dead friend in a funeral home, and Clarence Williams III is the the mortician who's who's dealt with the whole situation. He starts telling them stories. What I'm saying is, if it was a TV show, you wouldn't need those characters in it. You just have him presenting like the crypt keeper right to the camera, and I would very much enjoy that personally. Well, um, just to backstep a little bit, the movie begins uh, going with the wraparound story, Welcome to My Mortuary. One thing I really like about this is everything's titled. Each story has a title, the beginning, the wraparound, all of it's got a title. You've got three youths, three drug dealers that have been told, possibly by a mortician, by somebody that runs Sims Funeral Home, that there's drugs and that he will give them to them. So these three youths appear at the funeral home and you... Instantly, I've referenced this on the last show a few times, and it's kind of, I guess, I don't think it's intentional, but maybe it's just my mind working with things, that something that helps and works with a anthology series is almost approaching it with a slapstick, three stooges approach. And this certainly goes full with that approach, that you do kind of have Larry Curley and Moe, or Shemp, depending on who you like the most, but you've got an aggressive character, a kind of silly character, and then the dumbest of the characters, and all three of them are, are uh, used pretty regularly in Rusty Cundiff's work. You might recognize a lot of them from The Chappelle Show also. I believe uh, Stack is Joe Torre, Ball is DeAndre Bonds, and Bulldog is Samuel Monroe Jr. So these three fellas, they all go to this funeral home to collect the drugs. The funeral home is run by the wonderful Clarence Williams III of Mod Squad fame, the reference on the other show, the man with the biggest fucking gap in his mouth of all time. Huge gap. Eating corn is probably incredibly problematic for Clarence Williams III. So he introduces them to some corpses before he tells them where the drugs are at, and each story is formulated on that. The first one is Rogue Cop Revelations, which stars... We've got Dwayne Whitaker. We've got Wings Hauser. Um, Anthony Griffith, I believe, plays Officer Clarence Smith, and then Michael Massey plays Officer Newton. It begins with an African-American being pulled over and what's formidably known as a quiet neighborhood and he's he's being beaten he's being given the rodney train rodney king treatment officer clarence smith is not able to see what's going on and unfortunately this man is pretty much beaten to death wings hauser and his buddies end up setting him up make it look like it was an accidental overdose causing clarence smith to not break the mighty rule of the police force don't snitch on other pigs he quits the force and starts having visions of this man that was killed. And this man is sort of a Martin Luther King type. He's known as a political agitator and an issue to the police force, but he's trying to unify the neighborhoods and kicking out cops that are dealing drugs. So obviously the almighty white police force that is serving and protecting the neighborhood, quote unquote, doesn't want something like that to happen. So he comes back and begins haunting Clarence Smith in visions until Clarence 
lures everyone together on the one-year anniversary of this political quote-unquote agitator's death for some justice to be served. And as all the other films we've mentioned, this has a very sardonic sort of nihilistic nature because it's just desserts. But what is most important about it is absolutely, yes, it's political, but I think for me, it's an extension of looking at uh, whiteness, being white, being having a place in society specifically because you're white and the difference in skin color. And the end of this shows that, you know, the, the just desserts happen to all of these awful, awful characters, all these awful white cops that wronged this guy. They get their just desserts, but it ends with a message that is very uh, fluent and sort of imperative to this entire movie black-on-black -black violence and how much black-on-black -black violence, especially in um, you know L.A. suburbs in the 1990s, was being committed via gang warfare, and the fact that this police officer didn't step in to help his brother. And that's a very big thing that said, you know, are you good, brother? Is everything okay? And the zombie ghost demon says back, where were you? When you need, when I needed you, brother. So it's a big play on the statement of of African American culture and the communities within East LA and the gang violence and people killing each other when the actual enemy is what's supposed to be protecting you. So the movie begins with a, a very political charged statement, but it's handled in a Three Stooges, over the top, goofy manner. And I mean. I love, personally, the end of this segment where you have Michael Massey melting and turning into the painting, and you begin, obviously, knowing you've got a pretty nice production value, a good budget here, and you're in good hands, but the roller coaster starts off at a peak, and it's very hard when you start off a movie with such a big peak to continue, so we got to take a dip, and I feel the next story is a little bit of a dip, and then we go into just insanity. The next story is, is a much more hurtful story i think well like uh, the first one is probably the most i mean they're all commentary stories in one way or another but this is like probably the most uh political maybe but just kind of the more heart-wrenching out of well hold on there's another segment kind of that's pretty fucking heart-wrenching in itself but as far as like a racial issue this is the one that's mostly about race and it's well, I don't know actually confront well, there's, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's kind of, it's a little bit more serious. How about that? It's a little bit more serious. We'll compare this to another to... one when we get down the line, and we'll see how they translate back and forth. Because this is actually saying something that isn't just kind of, you know, kind of a want-want ending. This one is actually trying to say something about violence of the era and police brutality of that era and racism within the police department. And that can be, uh, uh like it's, it can be very daunting to try to discuss those behaviors, especially within the format of a, a horror film for it to be like taken as light as a lot of horror fans want things to be, but also has a very strong message. And I think throughout tales from the hood, it does have a lot of strong messages but it never sacrifices its horror or humor elements to tell those to tell the message. It's not just a message. The message is there on top of a lot of like wonderful performing, special effects, acting, all all that stuff. Well, I think, and I don't know how to go about saying this, so I, I guess if it comes off insensitive, I'll just have to deal with it. 
I think it's harder for black men to tell a story like this than it would be for white men to tell a story about this because instantly in the cultural eye and in the mind's eye of America and how African Americans are, are viewed as, you've got this stipulation with, with a lot of Americans of, wait, I, they don't, are, they, we don't need to pay reparations. I don't care about equality. I don't care about affirmative action. I deserve this. I deserve whatever. I was here first, blah, blah, blah. There's always this negative connotation when an African American, a black man, can step up and tell his side of the story and say what he wants to say. There's always this honky above him. Yeah, well, what about me? What about Mexicans? What about blah? There's just always some shit that comes with it. So when a black man tries to tell his story and, and make his story, it's like what Jordan Peele is constantly hit with. Why are you making movies with all black people? And his answer is always, I've seen the story of all white people. I want to make something different. Where's the harm in that? And it's even something like Friday. They're, they're viewed as hood film. What an atrocious term to put on something. Why not just call it a comedy? How about that? Why does it have to have a connotation what, of color? Well, I think what you're trying to say is it's hard to make this kind of film and not be completely typecast as uh, as like this is all you do. Oh, well, it's a it's a it's a black movie, so it has to have this this and this. And well, I mean, that's part of the story uh, that I want to tell, and it's a part of the story of my culture that I, I would like to tell. But that doesn't mean this is the only thing I can do. This is just part of my aspect. I mean, Spike Lee has jumped all over the place. I mean, he made Malcolm X do the right thing. Uh, Clockers, he made that bank heist movie. He's made a bunch of weird, random stuff. And yes, he's made a lot of movies about race, but that's not solely what Spike Lee's filmmaking is about. He's just a filmmaker. Summer of Sam, bamboozled. He's gone all over the place. And I, I definitely agree, yes, that's a, a big part of what I'm trying to surmise here. And I, I certainly don't mean to be stepping or trying to overstep boundaries with my statements, especially on race. But I, I truly feel uh, black men have it so much harder getting their message out film-wise because it's taken as a trope. It's definitely put into a niche subject, just like I mentioned things like Friday or even the term black exploitation. It's all lumped into something that it doesn't necessarily have to be lumped into. And that's what I really enjoy about Tales from the Hood specifically is, yes, it is based on African-American culture, but I think it's something that you should be able to, I mean, you should be able to see that these police officers are absolutely corrupt. But you should also be able to see that Clarence wasn't in the right. He should have turned them in. Moving into the next story, Boys Don't Get Bruised. This is one of my favorites, and it also stars the director. It's dark. Yeah. It's so fucking dark. The end of it's probably the darkest thing, but you've got a boy, a little boy, who's a transfer student at a new school who's just not dealing well. And I don't know about you, but I changed schools a few times, and I can feel this kid's... I feel empathy for him. I understand how hard it is moving around. But you come to find out that there's a monster in his life. He truly and certainly believes that there is a monster that has infiltrated his home and has been causing harm to him. And his teacher is very apt to notice these things and tries to have a dialogue with him, tries to find a solution to the problem to where eventually he goes to this child's house and finds his stepfather and has an interaction with him wonderfully played by David Allen Greer. Probably one of my favorite performances from David Allen Greer because for the most part... You know him as uh, just a, a wonderful, funny... A guy who smiles. Yeah. He smiles a lot. <laughs> he's just a genuinely happy character actor, but he usually always plays, even if it's goofy, kind of positive characters. And in this essence, oh man, he's the worst. He's the worst villain. Just, God, he is the monster. And you come to find this little boy 
uh, associates him as a monster because of a tattoo he has on his arm. And where we move into here is a very abusive, uh, ridiculous scene. I mean, it's hard to even get through what happens in the, the end of this segment because David Allen Greer's performance is just vicious. He assaults his wife, he assaults the child, he beats the hell out of the teacher, he just goes absolutely bananas. It's incredibly graphic, it's hurtful, it, it makes you sick, it's just such a graphic display of violence that isn't gore, it's not over-the-top blood, it's not gut spilling, it's just very uncomfortable, and that's something Emotional yeah. violence. You have a, a ballet of emotion, and that's something that definitely has to be handed to Rusty Cundiff as a director to be able to choreograph and get this shot, because it's painful, even watching the teacher get his ass beat. But the little boy was told something by the girl that sits behind him in class, that sometimes it helps to draw the monsters, to draw the things that hurt you and harm you, and then burn it, destroy it, get rid of it. Uh, you know, a very meditative kind of Taoist idea, but the little boy goes ahead and does it. His teacher tells him it's laughable, but whilst this assault is happening, he folds a piece back of a sketch of the monster, and I, I love this part. David Allen Greer's arms and legs, they go jelly, he gets broken. special and, effects. Yeah, it's, it's just such a fun which is odd in such a horrific, hurtful scenario. You've got this weird, fun, goofy, almost Looney Tunes, um, not even Looney Tunes, like who killed Roger Rabbit level of, of fun with him being twisted and turned into this man pretzel. And my favorite part, he's just all broken up. He's got this frying pan in his hand. It ain't over, bitch! I'm gonna fucking kill you, bitch! This shit ain't fucking over! And he's still, to the last end, a big douchebag until finally they squish and step on the painting and burn it and... It's such a fun segment on top of being brutally awful, and maybe because it is so realistic. I'm not saying everyone has dealt with something like this, but for the most part, I think somebody at least knows somebody that's been harmed or hurt by a parent or a step-parent, and you could feel the realism with the EC Comics over-the-top spooky nature of what you're supposed to be watching here. Yeah, and I think there's a a lot of catharsis at the end because it is such a serious subject matter and it's handled incredibly serious that it has such kind of this over-the-top special effects Aladdin ending of David Allen Greer turning into this wad of a human being where it just, it it this cathartic feeling of evil is punished, he gets what he deserves, and everything's kind of okay at the end. It doesn't end negatively. It ends on a happy note because that son of a bitch went through some fucking pain, and that's what you kind of want to see. So, I mean, that's how you set up a just desserts. You make it worth your while, and this one's definitely worth the while because you want to see him pay. You want to see him get punished. And that's probably like one of the better segments in this whole thing, I think, personally, is just because it is it is so realistic at times and somewhat hard to sit through it's the most successful because i think it's the next segment where things i like this segment most definitely but we get cartoony as fuck which is okay it's just going from this domestic abuse scenario into something that's a little bit more like trilogy of terrors is it's <laughs> kind of a jarring experience throughout this film I kind of like how the next sequence comes up, and uh, here, on this point of Death by DVD, we'll talk about some real-life stuff. I recently was in a very big anthology movie. It's got about eight different parts in it. And while we were filming in it, I, uh, I was a PA on the set, and I had a scene. 
And it, you know, it's just a one-take scene. There wasn't really any dialogue. I'm a pizza delivery guy, and there wasn't supposed to be anything involved. You know, I deliver a pizza. It's a quick cut scene. And it ended up being, a, I don't know, a minute-long thing, and I tell a joke, and I do this whole you know, little act. It's the Hank act. And that's about the end of it. But what makes it work is the next scene that we follow into is a very horrific, violent segment, a very heartbreaking segment about breast cancer. So sometimes being able to balance things, and I'm just using this as an example to plug, my good friend Manny Serrano, co-owner of Mass Graves Pictures, who uh, directed a movie that I'm in that will be out sometime later this year that you can find the trailer for on YouTube, Dark Tales from Channel X. <gasps> okay, I'm good. I'm done sucking dick. Whore! You're a whore. Oh, well, I'm a whore for myself. So at least that somewhat matters. Oh, P.S. I'm in the trailer. So you should definitely find it because you can see me, right? That's awesome. But being able to add a little bit of comedy, it's, it helps. And we go into a little bit more of a lighter section here uh, and then kind of transgress back into darkness. But in between this, uh, we and this is probably one of my favorite wraparound segments that we'll be talking about on, on this double episode that we're doing. It, it connects and drops back and forth. So every time you get this little thing with the three hoodlums and Clarence Williams the third, And I, I just love the performances and the characterization. You've got one guy in this awesome... Uh, Adidas jump shoot with a really cool white Kangol hat pointed to the side, and he's sort of your uh, Larry Curly Moe. I guess he's more of your Larry character, so he's he's much more adamant. He's more excited and drives the other two, so you've got a really fun, again, just comedic nature of what's happening until it moves back into a, a, a scary story. And the next one is KKK Comeuppance, which stars... Corbin Burnson as Duke Metger, uh, obviously a play on the biggest cocksucker to ever live, David Duke, just an abhorrent, absolutely awful person, a former Grand Dragon of the KKK, who I believe is, I don't know if he still is, but he was fucking Senate Louisiana. The, the disgusting people. I'm sorry, anybody that listens to Louisiana. No, now he's just a freelance racist. Yeah, now he's a freelance racist, but unfortunately, one point, this man was a fucking senator or some form of government, and it's absolutely abhorrent. This story is based on a Ku Klux Klansman, a disgusting racist, uh, who is running for Senate in the South, and he decided to buy a home that is known to be one of the biggest slave massacres possible. He hires a guy... Can't remember the fellow's name, but he is an Oz. He is the correctional agent or correctional officer that gives Kareem Saeed the handgun in season one of Oz for your fun facts that collect Oz facts at home. He's hired this guy for $10,000 a week who's going to make his image better. An African-American gentleman himself. He is, I don't know a better term. He's the Uncle Tom. I mean, that's the, the character he's playing. He's helping the evil fucking white man. That's the point of, I think, Rusty Cundiff's commentary with the character. The whole lore of this is the house was a big, giant slave owner, and he decided toward the end of the war that his slaves couldn't go free, so he committed a massive massacre and killed all of them in very horrific ways. Many years later, a voodoo priestess owned the house and put all of the disrupted souls into little slave dolls. The lore is if... You own the house unjustly, the slave dolls will get their revenge and kill you. 
that's exactly what happens here. The man that's paid $10,000 a day to make David Duke, or, or Duke Metger, Corbin Burnson, sorry, we'll call him by his name, Duke Metger's character, a, a better-looking person, he's tripped and falls down the stairs and breaks his neck by one of the dolls. It's the first act of violence you get into, and then slowly it turns into a paranoia story with probably the greatest performance from Corbin Burnson going absolutely crazy, and the second half of him yelling, Racial slurs I've never even heard before. Just some of the most insensitive, awful comments that drives the story. And again, you mentioned it's sort of a cartoonish pace because your villains are dolls. This is like the trilogy of Terror Karen Black part of the story. The little African doll that runs around and hunts her down. But I love it. It's just so vicious. And then the best part to me is slowly all the paintings on the wall start to disappear as they come to life and attack him and give him his absolute just desserts. But this is, I think, more of a comment on reparations than anything else. And the story, the character Duke Metger, is against affirmative action. And that's how the story starts off, with a little political ad of, we don't really need this, everybody should be able to do everything together. This quasi-socialist, jerk-each-other-off, pro-white bullshit statement. And the entire point is, it's, it's not about reparations, it's not about fucking money, it's not about paying things back. It's about giving some semblance or idea of equality, uh, a, a, acknowledging the horrific things of the past. I mean, imagine if Germany straight up was like, Holocaust didn't happen. We're going to tear down Dachau. We're going to tear down everything. Fuck Anne Frank. We're going to get rid of all that because it was in the past. It doesn't matter. That's pretty much like saying, fuck reparations, fuck affirmative action. You got to take things into consideration of what happened to people. It doesn't matter if your great-great-grandfather didn't own slaves. These things still happened. It's the point of, of trying not to let them happen again, trying to heal these awful scars and, and make humanity a whole. You know, some big white dove flying with a twig in its mouth after the rainstorm. Peace, love, that sort of thing. Why does it got to be a white dove, Hank? Because it's a sign of peace. Are there black doves? It could be a black dove. It's fine. It could be brown doves. What, Your what little speech is very telling. Very telling about you. Uh, this, uh, this segment is probably the most fun segment. It's pretty much the most goofball segment. Corbin Burnson is a comic book fucking villain. I mean, there's nothing. He's fucking over the it's, top. Yeah, it's really over the top and he gets attacked by an army of, uh, little pennies. Does anybody remember little penny <laughs> from the shoe commercials? But anyway, that's basically what's going on is just trilogy of terror attacked by some little fucking dolls. It's fun bullshit. Corbin Burnson's never played a better racist in his life. Uh, <laughs> I, I enjoy this segment. <laughs> How many racists has he played? <laughs> Quite a few, I think. I'm pretty sure. He's... Now that you say it, actually, yeah. And and same with Wings Hauser. <laughs> oh shit. Well, oh. Wings is in vice uh, vice squad mode in this film. He's just a complete nutter fucking douchebag. Just the amount, like every other word out of his his mouth. Boy, why don't you come over here, boy? What's so funny, boy? What you talking about, boy? It's just uncomfortable. Wings Hauser plays that racist uncle that everyone probably had. It's uh, it's great though. He's he's a good actor. Yeah, like this is probably the segment that most people remember from this movie. I remember seeing. Uh, promotional materials for it and this is the segment i was most excited for it's not the segment i end up liking 
the most, um, but it, it is a very fun segment. Probably the next segment is one of my least favorite, but oh, again, wow. that has more to do with my affinity for kooky shit like monsters and little dolls. Because uh, the next segment is a clockwork orange. <laughs> Moving on to my favorite segment. <laughs> oh, wow, man. How are we so different? It's just like, this one's just like, all right, this is just, everything sucks. <laughs> well, that's, I guess, again, I mean, we were talking about this on the first episode. Maybe my passion for the more negative aspects of stories is what drives this one for me. Hardcore convert. It's about a guy named Crazy K. He's an ultimate gangster. You know, he's the gangster's paradise guy. You know, you, you gotta stay away from him or he's gonna smoke you. Somebody owes him money and he fucking kills this guy. As he's moving away, three of this dude's homeboys waste him. Police show up. He's He survives. He was shot twice in the back, and everything's okay. He gets a life sentence for all these murders and being the worst hoodlum of all time. And you aptly referenced the Clockwork Orange. He's given this ultimatum to change his personality through uh, pretty much a giant dick sequence. Spinning in a chair. We got to show this guy's bulge as much as possible. How can we show his bulge? And you got a lot of bulge sequences and some weird torture. But again, this is this is the, the essence of the movie. And what I brought up at the beginning is black-on-black violence. And that's truly, I think, the entire point of, of Rusty Cundiff's monologue with the entire movie is the amount of violence committed between different gangs in that area. And the point of the story is how many black people have you killed? And this character is put in prison next to a horribly bigoted, you know, Vern Schillinger, to make another Oz reference, neo-Nazi. And what he's educated is this guy is a horrible man. His whole life is based on killing African Americans, but Crazy K's done the same thing. All he's done is killed the people of his race, killed his kind. All he's done is the same thing as these white supremacists. So the entire point... And again, this is a kind of dangerous subject for a honky to be discussing, admittedly. But the entire point here is the amount of violence that was committed between the African-American community for something as ignorant as a color, a, a bandana. And all of it comes down to, what, earning drug money? None of it was... All of it in, entirely is kind of the point of the man, which you could consider to be honkies or even looking at the Nixon administration, who willingly and openly has now admitted in declassified paperwork pretty much set up crack and crack houses and low-income areas. It's proof and in the pudding in the United States history that the white male has done everything possible to keep the black man down. And this is a statement on that. I mean, it's not even so much a tongue-in-cheek statement, this it's not anti-white. And I don't want anything I'm saying to be misconstrued racially or as an opinion of mine. I'm trying to state what I feel is the basis of this movie. It's not anti-white whatsoever. It's not. It's just like not every cop is bad, not every white guy is bad. But you have to look at how society has forced people into certain roles, into certain stereotypes, even to how this movie is judged or spoken of as a hood movie, or like I was saying earlier... African-American men don't get to tell stories as easily as white men. And the whole thing, the whole piece of this movie coming down to the very last wraparound story, Welcome to My Mortuary, I think is an emphasis on that. Because what you find out at the end of this here is that Crazy K has been dead the entire time. And the three of our wraparound story were the gentlemen that assassinated and killed Crazy K. 
which are shot down and killed by his friends, and that's been the wraparound story. They're not in a mortuary picking up drugs. They've been in hell the You've entire been in hell. time. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's the the exact same ending as Tales from the Crypt, the uh, the original like seventies or sixties one. I can't remember which era that came out in, but and like there's a really interesting and weird screaming mad George devil design at the end of it. Clarence sticks his tongue out between that awesome gap and he yells out, This ain't the Terror Dome! Neither! Welcome to hell, motherfucker! And it's great. I mean, you you have a comedy, and uh, to touch upon the uncanny, a very amicus tight feel to a very unpleasant story. And again, it's not unpleasant because of its racial nature, but especially as a fucking white guy, when you watch this movie, hopefully... You can kind of see there there is a difference. Black people aren't treated the same. And this is a movie from 1995. And I think every single point and piece of the story is black people are just not treated the same. And it's not a matter if you don't believe in reparations, you don't believe in affirmative action. It's not a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of acknowledging and, and being human and having something more than ignorant gain like the very first story what was their gain outside of protecting crooked cops none of them were wholesome good people it didn't matter that they were white they were just crooked that's the point yeah tales of the hood is a bit of a classic it was kind of ignored for a bunch of years did really well on video and then like a couple years ago they decided to make a sequel that we're well we're just not going to discuss that yeah. sequel <laughs> Because I think Tales in the Hood, like again, was criminally overlooked. It tanked at the box office, but it amassed its its fan base over the years. And me being one of them, I will say it right now: uh, this is one of the movies that uh, I dubbed off of VHS. Because that's I was a bootlegger. That's what I did. I would just bootleg movies for myself. And this is one that I picked. I didn't pick every movie I rented. This one I was like, I'm gonna watch this one probably a few times, and I probably watched it 10 20 times over the years it's been a while since i'd seen it and it's good to kind of revisit it and kind of remember especially for that different era um when you grew up in that era and lived through the la riots and all that shit it's just it reminds me of all that shit and how almost none of that has been solved we just kind of put a band-aid on it and said stop complaining congratulations america Way to fix it. It's almost like we just stopped giving black filmmakers, um, if you want to make a movie here, make this fucking action movie. Shut up. Sh shut up and make something else. Don't make anything. Like, where, where's Spike Lee's? Hey, what do you make? The Black Klansman? That's his most probably... Old boy. Kind of. Uh, yeah, I mean, old boy, that remake. I mean, you just don't get this level of black filmmaking as you were in the 90s, like, especially kind of more on the indie side of things. And it's very interesting to take horror into that equation and combine it with all that and make a film that is also about something, but also is a horror film. I mean, if you watch something like, and I'm a big Ernest Dickerson fan, don't get me wrong, but that Snoop Dogg movie bones, that's not Ugh. a good movie. That's a, that's a bad movie. And it doesn't really say anything or it's not. And it's just kind of like, let's make Snoop Dogg a horror star. And, 
it just doesn't have the same impact as something like Tales from the Hood, which has a story but also has a bit of a message. It doesn't conk you over the fucking head with a message, but, I mean, the message is within the stories, and it, it's allowing you to understand a horror story from a different perspective that's not just the same kind of bland Tales from the Crypt kind of stuff because those most Tales from the Crypt stories are all basically the same, and they all feature just, hey, I'm a scumbag. And I killed my wife, and now there's some sort of very uh, just desserts revenge. And this one, it's it takes that aspect of an anthology film and really kind of puts other things into it, like racial issues, and it examines those as well. So, uh, uh, kudos to Rusty Cundiff. I wish he had done more movies over the years. I think what you just said is a sentiment and a big statement to Rusty Cundiff's work. The fact that you can look at this movie now and see that these things have not been solved and it still has as much power as it did in 1995. So a movie that's going on 30 years old still has a lot of relevancy and rewatchability and uh, an incredibly powerful statement. And to touch briefly upon the sequel, the problem with it, it was written by Rusty, uh, it, it was directed by Rusty, it was produced by Spike Lee, it's just a Charles Band movie though. It, it is equally handled, the stories are well written and they're all aptly... Uh, focused in the same direction as the original film, the first film. They all have a good point on racism and the acknowledgement, therefore, of, of racism. It's just, uh, I, could, I couldn't say any better than it's a Charles Band movie. So there's a big part of the audience that might really enjoy that. I didn't end up finishing it. You got Keith David, not David Keith, but Keith David. He is now doing Clarence Williams III. Uh, his name is Sims. It's Explore it for yourself is one of those things. But the ball is now in your... Oh, wait, no. Let's give this a rating. Let's see here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give this four cult points, three stars. Hey, there you go, because I 100% agree. I had to think about it. I really had to put some thought into that one because it's an enjoyable movie and you've got some great performances. Dwayne Whitaker is hysterical. He gets killed by a zombie grabbing his dick and banging his head into a tombstone. It's great. Wingshauser's great. It, probably one of the best performances. We just made fun of him pretty heavily on the Vice Academy episode. Wingshauser. It's all, everything needs to be taken at a deep examination. I don't think this is a movie you can just watch and, oh, that was kind of funny. You need to examine the themes with it. So this was the only political movie, the only big rant, the big... Hank's going to waste time and talk for 20 minutes about random shit. Let's move back into B-grade, not even B, Z-grade movies. But I want to talk some shit. I want to say some things now. Go for it. Uh, I w as I was going on to that thing about how many black filmmakers in the 90s were making kind of exploratory pieces um, and taking things in interesting directions, and that kind of died off in the 2000s, the last great film that I think the examines uh african americans in america the last one i saw was um sorry to bother you that is a great film by a black filmmaker of the last recent few years that it doesn't involve being like f gary gray and making a fast and the furious movie i'm talking about actually exploring inter like racial issues and, and doing it in a humorous way that's not just commentary 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 there's a lot of bizarro insanity in that film too and it's goddamn tremendous i just i now don't think enough people have seen it it's on hulu right now sorry to bother you fucking watch that shit 
All right, my next film is a weird and super random one because almost no one has heard of this, and I didn't know about it until a few years ago. And it comes from Earl Owensby, a South Carolina filmmaker who produced a lot of trash movies in the late 70s and 80s um, for the drive-in market and um, kind of that regional filmmaking. And this one is, it's one of those. It's just kind of a regional horror film anthology it starts with the wraparound footage of a corpse. Oh, yes. It's called Tales from the Third Dimension. I completely forgot to bring up the title because it was a movie that was shot in 3D uh, just for the gimmick of it. But um, you have a Crypt Keeper style character, which is Rod Serling's corpse, I guess, because he's doing a Rod Serling voice the entire time, um, named Igor. And he's surrounded by uh, a Igor. bunch of buzzards. I thought what? it was Igor. Whatever, Igor. Igor, Igor, it's the same fucking thing. But um, you have uh, some mechanical birds <laughs> that resemble the Three Stooges, some buzzards, and two that look like Laurel and Hardy. It's a that, part of um, anthology movies. You just have to have some sort of Three Stooges slapstick capability to it. <laughs> you throw me off on Tales from the Third Dimension. But this wraparound Three Stooges, footage, birds is shot on a set and the set looks like it was in a carnival haunted house. And that's one of the very cute things about this. It this looks like gimmick Andy Milligan's of bedroom. These, um, these like really cheaply done special effects of these birds just kind of opening their mouth and talking. And Igor, the fucking Rod Serling corpse that's introducing this. This is the most fun in this movie with the exception of the last segment, because the first two segments of this ain't great by any stretch of the imagination. Actually, they're kind of poor. The first segment revolves around, and I'm going to be super brief on this one, because this is literally a Tales from the Crypt story. This was ripped from the pages of Tales from the Crypt. I don't think they paid anybody for it. I think they literally just stole it from this movie, because they made an episode of Tales from the Crypt based on the same story. It had Larry Drake in it. But it's basically about vampires who want to adopt a child, and the child they adopt ends up being a werewolf, and they kill him. Or the werewolf kills them. That's the goddamn story. Um, and I, that's what, what was like in this film watching this. I'm like, I think I've seen this before. And as the story plays out, it's like, I've definitely seen this before because it's a fucking, it's in Tales from the Crypt in the original run of uh, the EC comics. So. Don't know whose residuals are getting paid and not getting paid, but I seriously doubt anyone's getting paid for this movie. Uh, but that's a very mediocre segment. Uh, the special effects are pretty cheap overall. The second segment I'll probably be even briefer on because it is boring, stupid shit of some grave robbers getting stuck in a tomb and eventually not it's getting out cats. and getting killed, and there's rats. Yeah, see, this one fits into the uncanny because there's cats. Woo, cats. Yeah, I don't care about this segment at all. It is really fucking I boring. I forget about this and, one. The first time I actually saw this movie, uh, bringing up old Death by DVD history, this was one of your old solo shows, one of your many, many YouTube shows, movies that you can find free streaming, and I had seen it years ago, and then again, we watched it together, and every single time I watch it, this is the one segment that hits me like it's new every time. It's not because I couldn't care less. It's just not particularly scary, frightening, funny. It doesn't really have anything to offer. It's just some gravediggers like, getting a comeuppance. Who gives a fuck? It's a really stupid story. 
The third but one's where the money's at. The third one is the I mean, third one. Ugh. It's probably my favorite anthology story of all time because it is dumb as fuck and hilarious. It's about two children getting left with their grandmother by two horrible parents who are going on vacation around Christmas. They get dropped off and grandma just it runs out of her pills and grandma goes a little bit fucking nuts and she she proceeds to try to kill these children in various different ways and puts rat poison in their cocoa and ends up poisoning herself. She ends up um what were some of the other things? She like she tried to throw a toaster in the bathtub because toast is always better when you're in the bath. You gotta have toast <laughs> in the bath. I like the shotgun toward the end. Well, that's when just shit breaks loose and she just starts chasing them, the kids around the house with a shotgun, like singing Ooh, Christmas songs. Scene. That's a good one. When she's just slapping down porridge for her dead husband and it's just splooging all over the table, all yucky. I mean, she's co- totally it, going batshit. It's kind of like a Requiem for a Dream amount of craziness. And it's just also fucking humorous. It's just so out of the out of the realm of understanding what the fuck is going on and why. And like what Hank just brought up, she's feeding this rat poison cocoa trying to to this little girl and she just doesn't have anything to say to her grandchildren so she just goes uh so how about them dallas cowboys which is just a weird line children think it's a weird thing for her to say and how's the weather what was the other thing how's the weather it's, it's fair. just like so madcapped and fucking nuts where this thing eventually goes because it just goes to this like almost benny hill skit of her chasing them around the house with a shotgun while the parents are uh, getting ready to come and pick them up, like this almost dash for a finish line of murder. And the parents have left the Christmas gifts at the airport, so they decide to go back. Just when you think the children are going to be saved from their crazy grandma, uh, they got to go back for the Christmas presents. She's got the gun trained on them. And then fucking Santa Claus shows up, and... The Santa Claus. Not an imposter. Does he strangle her for a second, and then he shoots her up the fucking chimney? It's just so fucking nuts. It's Merry awesome. Merry Christmas. It's so, it ends so positively. It's like one of the best Christmas things I've ever seen. It takes us back to Tales from the Hood, finally where the monster gets beaten up and killed. You're celebrating and happy for somebody's absolute and utter demise. And the f- sad part about this is Grandma just ran out of Xanax. She wasn't criminally insane. She's just very old and suffering from dementia, which clearly, if you read the physician's desk reference, causes you to kill your grandkids and possibly poison them the entire thing is just it it truly is the definition of psychotronic and i think to me the most there's so much kinetic energy in it the performances the 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 story and where it goes it just keeps building and building and getting crazier and crazier and then it just goes into just almost like quick cutting like action scenes of just nutso shit happening I specifically love the Dallas Cowboys scene when the grandmother says, how's the weather? And the daughter responds. So the granddaughter responds. She's like, yeah, it's fair. It's all right. And then it just, as you just said, quick cuts very into something else. And it just turns into this absolute spiral of insanity and brutality. And this should have been the first short in the movie. This is what would have caught people to continue watching. But if you'd use this first, I mean, you'd have just shot your wad and been completely out of steam. But it's just the fact that you're killing kids which is always a big no-no. It's always something offensive to try and harm or cause the harm of a child. And then you have this blissfully ignorant, out-of-medication grandma who is your Jason Voorhees awful villain, and the more and more it spirals out of the control, the funnier it gets. 
and that it's just it's so funny and so not the tone of the rest of this this movie and like from the wraparound footage of being so kind of quaint and taking you back to that childhood like fake cheap graveyard like funhouse graveyard that the stories themselves don't pay off to like this great wraparound footage and this eventual great segment at the end. It's just so much of a disappointment that the first two were not very interesting at all. But that last one, man, it saves the entire movie. Fast forward through the stories, watch the wraparound shit, watch the last story because it is fucking bats and I love it. And then the wraparound ends with a very sardonic and bitter skeleton who's angry at the four or five different vultures. You got the Laurel and Hardy vultures, then you've got the Three Stooges vultures. And it just ends with a promise that there will be more tales from the third dimension. And of course, there never were. There's no more. No. No, uh, I'm, pretty, I'm not positive about this. This could be completely wrong information. Um, I think Owensby might have sold the studio to Dino De Laurentiis when he was making films in South Carolina, like in the 80s, like uh, Maximum Overdrive and a few other things. But that's just, I'm pulling that out of my ass. I could be completely wrong about that. It sounds right enough that no one should question it. <laughs> so, saving the worst literally for last. We are yeah, yeah, yeah. But before you get started here, fuck you. Fuck you for like the your like the mania choice was actually better than this choice because this movie sucks. I had seen it before and I completely put it out of my mind because I thought it sucked. And then I watch it again, like, oh yeah, it's this one. Fuck this movie. It sucks. Originally, I was going to pick a movie called Mania, which is it's an anthology film, but I feel one of the biggest things about an anthology film is it has to have a wraparound, and the wraparound has to be good. Mania didn't have one. So we got to the point that we were getting ready to record the show and get everything in the books, and I wanted to change movies to something that had a wraparound. And that's where Freak Show from 1989 comes in. Now, the beginning Ugh. of the movie offers a little bit of promise because you get something kind of edgy. I mean, it's 1989, and it starts with a mass shooting, something which is funny now because when you watch this movie, I think the entire point was... How can we get people into this? How can we do something very shocking to draw the audience in? Oh, mass shooting. That that shocks everyone. Now you see school shooting, mass shooting, and you change the channel because it happens so regularly in the United States. Uh, another shooting. So I guess that's a bit of a damper on things. But this guy working at a theater decides, I don't know, he's been fired. They're not really clear on it. Maybe he's being picked on. He's going to kill everyone. And his dad has a bunch of Vietnam-era weapons. So he collects them, calls a news reporter and tells her what he's going to do, leaves a voicemail message, and then shoots up this theater, which she came and was present for. The movie begins with that. She's obviously a bit of a bitch, you know, a gale from Scream. All she cares about is getting the shot done. Her crew quits. Her boss tells her that he hopes she dies. She walks down the street and finds a late-night freak show, I guess. She needs to use the telephone and decides to go inside and meets the not Clarence Williams the third host of this strange eclectic. It's not even really a freak show though, because I don't even know what the freaks are supposed to be. They're like little clay sculptures of things that aren't like, like one of them resembles a human. The rest of them are just like fucking weird wizards and shit. I don't know what the fuck is going on. They're strange little creatures and glowing test tubes that somehow connect to stories that tell you about your inner self that have absolutely no connection, somewhat like the Joel M. Reed story, very loose connected things. And 
The first one begins with a junkie who is fighting a poodle and needs some drugs. He finds a ultra-nice, super-cool drug dealer, doesn't have money for it, kills the guy, and the guy's dog, lo and behold, somewhat like the uncanny, leads him to his death. Now, it's not that this is a lame story, but this one just nags and goes on and on and on, and you've got this dude doing his best, Dennis Hopper. Motherfucker! You wanna bite me, fucker? Come on, fucker! Fucker! And it just is over and over and repetitive, and nobody's... Uh, the drug dealer's kind of a dick, the, the druggie's kind of a dick, the dog's kind of a dick, and then they die. Ah, it's kind of like when we were discussing the one where the guy gets hit by the car. Ah, okay. The, one, the thing I didn't understand and really about this segment is they go into it, and the junkie in the story is played by the same actor who played the shooter at the beginning. Well, and what hair. I didn't understand is you think that the other segments would follow suit that people who died in this first mass shooting like would turn up in these stories like, you know, their own personal trips through hell or some bullshit like that. But they just forget about that and just move on and do like more stories and they don't include an actor from that initial mass shooting thing in any of the other segments. It doesn't make any fucking sense to me. It's a guy chasing a dog who's got a big baggie of white powder. I guess it could be heroin or coke, whatever the fuck. And he gets hit by a subway. I'm assuming heroin. The end. He's supposed to be fiending. It's kind of got this pseudo sleazy street trash feel. He's very dirty. It's very gritty. And you're going to Way to package that heroin in a Ziploc. I've got one little baggie left for you. And it's like a fucking O. Like it's a full ass fucking $5,000 bag. Yeah, you don't package heroin that way. Unless, I mean, like. When it gets to you, but you don't, you're not going to like, hey, here's my entire stash. Here is fucking eight grand worth of fucking heroin. Don't kill price, me for it. How much is it? Two. Uh, two what? Two, it's not even two. All right. We're getting way too much into our knowledge of how much white powder goes into a bag. We might have lived a little <laughs> bit. Before. You put it in little paper sleeves. Get your shit straight. It's called a fucking dime bag, man. Come on. All right. Yeah, we're getting way, way too off here. The second story, though, is even worse. This one doesn't have any place. It, it doesn't have place in any of them. This could have been filmed and shot and put in any of the movies we've discussed on these last two episodes, and it still would have fucking sucked. It wouldn't have mattered who did it. But at the same time, it's kind of funny, and it's like... A little Dave Dakota skit. It's like Police Academy. Not Police Academy. Fuck. It's a little Vice Academy. It's got some... Uh, nonsensical sleaze. You've got a pizza parlor that, and this is my favorite thing. Oh it's this like big Italian pizza parlor. I think it was called Al Capone Pizza. Al Capone Pizza. Wait a minute. Al Capone Pizza. Wait a minute. Al Capone Pizza. Hold on. But the line cook is Korean, and there's like three or four random white chicks. I, I don't know. There's a, it's a Korean white Italian Sicilian family. They get a call that they gotta deliver a pizza. To 1313 Dracula Lane. I don't know. It's something very sticky like that. And they decide to use the new guy who's, you know, a normal dweeb honky. They get him to go out. They make a bet about, you know, getting this job done and how horrific it is. But it turns out this is a a horrible bordello of the dead. There's these really kind of dog-like. They are 1980s heavy metal music video girls. That's exactly what they are. They would have been great in early H.G. Lewis nudie cuties. They're all kind of dog-like vampire chicks. Not the hottest girls that you could get, but let's look at the budget here. And I guess The white lion video. 
Yeah, oh god, maybe like a wasp video. It's not good. It's not a good quality video. It's not the chicks that were sucking Motley Crue's dick. Let's put it that way. But I guess this fella, this delivery dude, he's a vampire too. I don't know. There's not a lot of clarity. He's a to demon. It. Okay, so he's a demon. There's something to it because there's a good eight minute uh, pseudo skinamax sex scene where everybody's in lingerie and he has mind control and it's really really awesome. Then he goes back. And he gets a bet for all the guys to go get laid. Ah, and then he's got horns, and he looks like the other movie that we talked about. Uh... Yeah, like the story itself doesn't even particularly make sense. They send this guy out to something they know is sketchy. It turns out he's this nerd dude is a demon. I, I guess. guess it's a whole cult of vampire women that he can hypnotize or whatever. And then he sends the dudes over after so they can get killed well they made fun of them it's like what the fuck is this story because like about like what 50 to 60 percent of it is just music and the girls dancing around in their underwear but why is he feeding the vampires i mean they don't even have some linear aspect as to why he'd be helping them out it's like well i'm a demon that was working some shitty delivery why why are you i don't get it i don't get any of it i think it's more of just the vengeance angle but if you're a fucking demon just kill the dudes why are you working on a pizza power in the exactly. first place if you can make yourself have a james bond tuxedo and with a bunch of fucking like you know white snake girls surrounding you like what i don't understand the purpose of the story what were you doing what was your ploy you know uh, i guess i was staking out this pizza place to get some weird korean italian souls there is no direction. So again, like I said, this wouldn't fit with any of uh, of the movies we've had in the last two episodes. It's just kind of, and that's the problem and why we saved Freak Show for last, because it's just willy-nilly. It's all over the place. Following that, it gets even worse, because you follow the first story, and then you go into the second story, absolutely nothing. So there's no connection. You're trying to hope you've got the actor from the wraparound in the first story, now we've got a girl that's partying at a bar and I guess takes some form of LSD that completely paralyzes her, cuts off all of her circulatory system, you know, she, uh, for all intents and purposes, is dead, and then she's taken to the morgue where they, you know, operate on her and embalm her and assume she's dead, which, you know, the, the Jane Doe movie, it's a story that's been told many times. There's one with that kid from uh, Star Wars. Awful. It's, it's just kind of a, a shocking idea. Even, for example, Bouquet of Blood and Guts, the new American guinea pig movie, the whole premise and idea of that is they dose these chicks on acid and then paralyze them to disembowel them. So the whole driving idea is, you know, she's dosing and tripping on acid, and that's absolutely terrifying, but the entire inner monologue the character delivers while she's being operated on and they're performing and bombing on her, She's not tripping, she's just really upset, so they completely neglect the one thing that makes it really fucking scary, and it's just kind of a drab, again, this kind of plays like a Robert Stack uh, unsolved mystery. It doesn't really have any flavor to it. Well, this one is, again, it's, an, it's a Tales from the Crypt story. It's uh, the, the uh, HBO version of it had um, Tony Goldwyn and fucking, was it Tom Arnold in it? I think, and uh, somebody else. But yeah, like they they completely did this one on Tales from the Crypt. It's just slightly changed and different. But you know one thing we didn't bring up, Hank, before you get to this last story? Because when we get to the last story, you know what I realized about this film? Ooh, what? It's fucking Canadian. It's a Canadian anthology film. 
as was Poor the uncanny and funnily enough the movie that this replaced mania all of them were canadian so outside of tales from the hood i went entirely canadian for this episode got a maple boner going on there son maybe the canadians just were good enough at lackluster anthology that they managed to ca- catch my heart so yeah this one ends of course uh she's alive Ooh, isn't it awful but there's no more. I almost there's... forgot about that story. It's like it seems like it's seven minutes long and it's about nothing. It's just kind of like eh, here and then it's over. Well, even looking at all the other movies that we've had on this list, there is a moral and a backbone and a message to it. Obviously, Tales from the Hood has the most in-your-face message, but even Joel M. Reed, he he had a whole point to the delivery and the punchline and how things were given to you and Freak Show. Just it has nothing. All of these things are just loosely placed, and you'd reference this with one of your last picks. It just seems like a bunch of shorts that were slammed together because somebody wanted to release them and get them out. And I, that happens. I get it. But the problem is none of them connect. There's there's not a horror angle. There's not a ghoul angle. There, it's, it, there, it's so many different genres of horror, body horror, violence, gore, whatever. You could interconnect so many different things, and this just is loose and all over. And when we finally get to the last story, it just is even... This is where you stop watching. You've got, like, this fucking Mike Starr-looking guy. Not the actor Mike Starr, but the bassist from Alice in Chains, Mike Starr. Uh, big, frilly hair, kind of hair metal, proto-grunge-looking dude. They're gravediggers, I guess. He looks immaculate. He's digging graves with another big, fat guy. And this woman is the cause for her husband's heart attack, and they're digging the grave. I don't know. They cook uh, uh, this whole plan up together to get the great funeral dirt because it helps grass grow better. <laughs> they're reseeding the chicks whose husband's size golf course that she just inherited yeah, with graveyard dirt, dirt. Makes it grow better. I what? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense that we're going to get the sod from here. And when we run out of sod, we'll just put rocks and put the sod over top of the rocks. And they're just running this weird scheme. And this is like all played for laughs. Totally played for laughs. So the rest of the movie has been, for the most part, kind of serious. This segment, I mean, it started out with a fucking mass shooting. And now we're getting into like hardcore like comedy, like slapstick almost. And the thing that I just it baffles me is it starts so graphic and it starts with somebody dying and then it moves into just this, this meaningless plot of like, no, the grave dirt makes things grow better. So they're stealing grave dirt and then replacing the graves with rocks, which makes the dead mad. So it's like a white trash version of Cemetery Man. I'm just so confused and conflicted because it's like, what, what, you don't have a purpose or point for the story whatsoever. And the bad guys kind of get their comeuppance, but. They were just putting dirt down. I don't understand what happens. And like I said, we saved this for last because it's atrocious. And it's just, there is this a isn't... good joke within that story, though, is when they she uh, she's going, oh, my God, the dead are turning back from life. And like fucking Hesher dude just goes, yeah, that means Beatles reunion. OK, it's kind of it's a good laugh. Everybody gets one. It, that. it had it had a, it had a good joke in it. Oh, OK. And then it just kind of ends, and the wraparound for this gets even worse because that ends, and it goes back to the weird Star Trek holodeck exploration of the freaks that are weird clay things and tubes, 
and the now, one laser that they're shooting in a black backdrop. I mean, it's all it is. It's it's a it's one of those spinny fucking tube lasers. Yeah, the whole setup for this movie is like when you meet somebody and they tell you that you're gonna go to a really cool underground party and there's gonna be lots of acid and mushrooms and it's one douchebag playing EDM music with one fucking black light. That's it. Two chicks hanging out in the corner and one guy's passed out in the bathtub because he did too much ketamine. That kind of vibe. That's the whole. It's just unsavory. The entire vibe is unsavory. And then you get to this end of the wraparound story and she's in this shitty neon room with all these tubes of weird, unclear stuff that you really can't picture or even see if it's a monster or what the fuck it could possibly be. And lo and behold, you're here because this is a reflection upon you and you're part of my freak show now. And she begins repeating her and her monologue from the beginning of the movie. Uh, what? What happened? Because she's a news reporter, the biggest freak of all. Ooh. And, like, yeah, it's just a really lame ending. And then it starts to cycle into this, and this freak show thing that's been going on is actually the movie that the mass shooting people were watching before they got shot. So it's a loop, too. The whole thing's, it's just, I don't think they knew where to stop. They just kept throwing ideas at it because this whole thing is very undefined of what they were attempting to do. The wraparound doesn't make any sense. Neither did the stories make any sense. It's just a very messy anthology film and it's a Shapiro Glickenhaus movie. So I know they probably had like, um, Glickenhaus was a hell of a director and producer himself. And it's just like, I, I, I'm assuming they just gave people like a million dollars to make an anthology film. And the people just royally fucked it up. And that's, very odd for Shapiro Glickenhaus movies for it to be this loose and kind of fucked up. They're usually pretty tight. The thing that I think is the most misleading about this is the wraparound story. And then you get such a, a, a lame limp ending. And that's really why you're following it, that you think there's going to be some great comeuppance and some justice to this obviously callous and horrible character, because at the beginning of the movie, it's shown that she knew that there was going to be an incident. This guy left a voicemail explicitly stating what he was going to do, and instead of calling the authorities, she went out there and decided to shoot it for the betterment of her career. So I guess, you know, there is a weak attempt at having a message and a theme here, but it just it's it's just very blatantly disregarded because all the stories in the wraparound, yes, they have some form of, you know, just desserts and comeuppance to bad people, but they're just so loose and... and incoherent i guess more than anything else by the time you get to the ending of the movie it's like i don't care so she's a part of the freak show now well what's the freak show there, there's no justice it doesn't matter when you're presented something even like the the joel m reed picture we talked about in the first episode there's still a common thread and theme of what's happening even the uncanny had a common thread and theme of what was happening and uh negativity being serviced in a sort of a karmic way yeah, it's just, I think the whole thing is just too loose for its own good. And just in general, like this type of crap filmmaking is really what started to kill the industry in the late 80s and early 90s, it, where they people just didn't have defined idea of what they wanted to do. Like um, the golf course segment, it's kind of humorous. It's very humorous. And I don't for the movie to start with a mass shooting the way it does and for it to get heavy that early on and for it to have like two really weird comedy segments within what else is going on in the framework of this story. It's just like, you've got to pick sides here. Tales from the crypt when they would do, um, 
episodes. They're doing episodes. It's a TV show. So one episode could be a crime and suspense story and could have like a very serious overtone on it. And then the next one could be a goofy episode. It could, you know, involve some monsters or what. So that way it makes sense. But when you can self-contain it into an anthology film like this, it all has to kind of fit together. And this one just doesn't fucking fit together. Creepshow fits together really well. This does not fit together at all. It's just all over the fucking place. Well, you got to look to, I think it was the first episode that I had brought up, Creepshow and how it kind of set the bar for anthology films. You have to look at how it, it molds and meshes together, that all of the stories are somewhat of despair. There is a, a theme to what you're feeling and what you're invoking to the audience. I mean, you go through Jordy Farrell and then you've got the... Uh, Ed Harris dancing segment, and you've got the shitty wife. You've got so many different things that just are constantly kind of adding layers that dig you down and make you feel a little degraded to where you can understand the place and the point that I think Ramiro and King were pushing you at as to where with Freak Show, it's like, here's some stuff. We have some stuff. And, and again, that's not always a problem because when you have things to show and you can do it in a fashion of an anthology film, what is the important thing is your wraparound. So you can take some loosely created ideas, but if you can come up with a wraparound creative enough to express those ideas without causing a lot of alarm or direction to them being different, you've done something successful here. And like that's what even works with something like Creep Show 2 with uh, how sticky and goofy the creeper is. It's not even a really fun wraparound. You've got the comic book idea and the kid ends up getting the seeds that makes the giant man-eating thing and eats the bully, whatever. It's, it's but totally still... it's consistent. That's the exactly. thing. And, like, for the most part, like, uh, the original Creep Show, you have the Jordy Verrill segment, which is incredibly, like, humorous, and a lot of the other ones aren't quite as humorous Meteor and a little shit. bit more serious. But, like, film-wise, it all ties together with George's direction and uh, the lighting um, mechanisms that he's using and all those sorts of things. It all gets tied together tonally. And Free Show does not tie together. The tone is all over the goddamn place. Uh, you've got through the wraparound this like very dark kind of neo-techno feel to things and that you're going to get into this deep-seated place of emotion and understand wrong and right because obviously this reporter is a, a shitty person. Obviously that their head is in the wrong place. They don't care about human life. They care about reviews and value of their show. And then it doesn't transgress anywhere. It doesn't move anywhere. You don't get any emphasis of an educated story. You don't get an up or down. You don't see this person progress. It's like, oh, they're a shitty person, and here's some stories about shitty people, I guess. Uh, all right. Uh, I guess, I mean, trying to, to look at the the best parts of the movie, I do like the, uh, the, the drug dealer fucking weird Dennis Hopper guy. I mean, that's what I feel he's trying to channel the entire time. Just, fucker! You fucker! You you bite me, you fucker! You're biting every needle that's been in my arm! There's some witty, okay dialogue, and it, that part I think I referenced earlier, it does kind of remind me of Street Trash. It's got a, a fun, gritty New York feel for a Canadian movie. I mean, hey, downtown Toronto is pretty dirty. Let's, let's just face the facts. <laughs> downtown Toronto's got heroin just as well as Brooklyn. That kind of pushes you to think you know because the value wasn't that bad i mean it's a it's hard to get all that shit shot they had a, a whole junkyard sequence they have the apartment sequence they have the roof shots so you have at the very beginning of this movie some kind of 
elegant, fun action scenes, and you expect it to continue in that you know manner. You think that it's going to keep pumping, and it just goes nowhere. It goes to a completely different island and a completely different feeling, and then tries to bring you back with that dark blue porno neon middle section and it just i don't care i don't care about the reporter i don't this, none of this is making any fluency but even something as loose as the wraparound with creep show you're not really focusing on that you're you're focusing more on what's happening like by the time you get to the ed harris story you're you're horrified that's one of the I, to me one of the scariest parts of creep show just the idea of being stuck without being able to move that that claustrophobic horrible idea that's just great i mean that Stephen King and George Romero, they were amazing working together. And it, it truly does set the bar. But even before Creepshow, I mean, the, the idea of anthology films had existed far beforehand, and I guess they maybe perfected it? I'd, I'd say. I mean, I, I, I guess I would dare say Creepshow's perfect. I think it's a perfect example of an anthology movie, perhaps, is a better statement. But in the long run, it's hard trying to come up with a a formidable list of movies that you could even compete with something like creep show. It's just impossible. So you have freak show from 1989, which doesn't even come close. Not at all. Not even a little bit. It's kind of crap. It's probably the worst movie we've talked about over these in thought. Ah, hold on. Tales from the third dimension. I don't know if that, that last segment offsets all of freak show because I I really think the first two, I, I really think that last segment is so fucking strong. And the wraparound for that is so goddamn bad. It, and it, it's just so Andy Milligan. It's, you can, not even just Andy Milligan. I mean, it's like John Waters, Andy Milligan, all these guys pushed together. Very Ed Wood. You can see the fishing line that's used to make the bats flutter. They didn't give a shit. There's some charm that you can appreciate and love when something's so bad that it's good. As to where Freak Show's just like, what it's a fart it's not even like a funny fart it's when somebody lets one of those dead ass silent horrible stinkers and doesn't tell you and the room just becomes hot and sticky and awful that's what freak show from 1989 (laughs) in its actuality is it's just a hot awful fart yeah uh god it's definitely the worst out of everything we watched but i mean we didn't go for you know the the most highbrow shit we 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 went for the uh, the high fang- hanging fruit. We didn't go for uh, just the, the basic things. Let's talk about Creep Show too. Let's talk about uh, no, no, no. We went for just weird, random bullshit. Why? Because we can milk this for years. This is a dead horse that we can just <laughs> yeah. Hey, part three, more anthology movies. You guessed it. We're lazy here at Death by DVD, and Joe Bob's stealing all the good material. He just did Maniac and Heathers. What a maniac. I liked it. Oh, we'll see next week. I got my guesses. So I guess that's the end of anthologies. A wonderful two-week exploration into uh, some questionable anthology films. One kind of good one. Oh, I mean, let's say there's five kind of good ones. And the sixth, not so much. (laughs) So the ashtray is full. The bottle is empty. We'll see you next week.
live DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem. Fire up.